Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have our first caller. Good evening, Tom. It's Travis Sabo. Hello, Travis. Good to talk to you this evening. As you know, we have some news and notes, and then we can get into this evening's topic. Next episode, Friday, September 12th at 8 p.m. Pacific, Larry Yeager. Now, for folks who aren't familiar with Larry Yeager, he's appeared both in the Biota 2 audio and also at the conclusion of Bruce Damer's London Graysum presentation. But Larry Yeager is just an amazing fellow. The earliest bio information I have on him puts him working with Jim Henson on Labyrinth. He developed Polyworlds, he worked at Apple, and now he's at Indiana as an academic, one of the pioneer academics teaching artificial life currently. So it's going to be amazing to have Larry on next week. I know we're going to probably have a packed list of callers who want to call in and ask Larry a topic, but just to prep you all, Friday, September 12th at 8 p.m. Pacific, Larry Yeager will be on the podcast. And Larry has amazing contact with regards to the early informative artificial life community. I mean, people like Carl Sims, Tom Ray, Chris Langton. I mean, Larry was amongst all of them, and as came through in the London Graysum audio, he has a lot of background to offer in terms of stories and things that you probably wouldn't hear reading a history of artificial life. I'd like to send a congratulations out to Biota alumni Dave Kerr for getting married this week to Margaret. Congratulations to them both. I'm hoping Dave will call in at Biota Live sometime. I know he's in Canada, but maybe we'll hook him up with a, a Skype connection so he can get a call in and chat with regards to some topics. Well, last week I announced Biota Live Lite, and within a day or so I'd already set up an iTunes account. So. If you're listening to this podcast and you'd prefer to listen to a low-bandwidth version or even better, something that divided the news and notes from the main topic, Biota Live Lite is for you. Now, I've only had a single piece of feedback, and that was at extremely slow speeds. There are some issues with regards to downloading. So if you're subscribed to Biota Live Lite and you're having any issues, please get in contact with me, Tom at NobleApe.com because this really allows for dial-up folk and folk that have reduced bandwidth issues to get the Biota podcast in a format which enables them to listen to. So I've had some questions and a lot of email this week about uh, the Biota CDs and where some of the traffic associated with the Biota podcast is coming from, particularly because there's been a kind of upsurge in correspondence as folks who've listened to previous news and notes will find. Well, the feedback that I've received so far is that Floss Weekly has been the main source for getting people subscribed to the Biota podcast in, in recent months. I have no real feedback yet on the CDs, and I think if you look at about 30,000, probably 40,000 folk who listen to Floss Weekly versus the CDs as they're slowly getting out and slowly making way into people's hands and uh, hopefully into people's CD slash DVD drives, you kind of get an impression about where the listeners may be coming from. We have a second caller. This is, is Joe. Joe, wonderful to have you on the call. We're just doing the news and notes currently, and then we'll get into this evening's topic. All right. So, Graysum-related news. I had, in previous weeks, been reading out the various Graysum chapters. You can go back and listen to a, a previous Biota Live in order to hear all the chapters, but I have three special requests. A request from Osha Yadgar, who heads up the Graysum Silicon Valley San Francisco chapter. They're looking for a presenter at the end of September. 
So if you're based in the Bay Area or if you are going through the Bay Area towards the end of September, please contact me, tom at noble8.com, and I'll forward you on to Osher immediately so you can have the opportunity to talk at a Grayson meeting. The previous Grayson meeting wasn't taped, unfortunately. However, I understand that Al Lundell may be back and will certainly be filming if he is back, and potentially also Bruce Damer as well. In addition, uh, two Greytham chapters that are looking for organising committees currently. This is folk who, in the case of Greytham London, may have already attended a Greytham, or just people in London who are interested in artificial life and would like to assist with the setting up of a, a Greytham chapter in terms of regular folk coming in and giving presentations. So the two locations are Greytham London, which has had, I think, three or four meetings already, and Greytham New York, which is having their inaugural preparation meeting at least this month, with a follow-up meeting next month, which will feature Biota's own Bruce Damer. I think it's going to be mid-month around the 15th to the 18th of October from memory. But if you're in the New York area or alternatively the London area and you would like to assist with the regular months-to-months issues associated with Grace, um, obviously communicating with Adam Aramenko and various other folk in the Boston chapter and also possibly sending news and notes for Biota Live, these kind of things. If that sounds like your area of interest, please get in contact, tom at noble8.com, and I will pass you on to the right people. So the feedback from the last show, again, a lot of feedback. As the listeners increase, the feedback seemed to increase as well. I think there was a general sense that the topic was cut short prematurely, and that was in part due to the hour-long time constraint. It was in part due to the kind of exploration of the component. So it is probably going to be a topic that we are going to revisit. In fact, it's quite topical with regards to this evening's conversation on spore as well. So it will uh, probably go on in the future. I'm not sure whether it will happen after Larry Yeager or whether we'll reorganize and divide sections of it. But there was a kind of logical step through that was slightly avoided in terms of what artificial life actually is. And if artificial life isn't just genetic algorithms, what does it become? Joe, you're on the call and I have as the next piece of news and notes to congratulate you with regards to the, the PAX conference. But as I have you on, do you want to give a debrief to the biota community about your experience there? Sure. I should probably give a little background on why I was there. So I created a flash game called Chronotron, which is unfortunately not an A-Life game. It's a, about a, a time, it's a puzzle game about a time-traveling robot. Sort of a platform game where you're able to go into the level and, and interact with it in some way and then go back in time and it records your previous self, so it creates a copy of you, and that copy will do exactly what you just did, and you're able to, uh, you know, use that, like he'll he'll hold a button down so you can go up an elevator, for instance, and uh, I just build on that sort of time travel self-cooperation elements and, and create a bunch of puzzles, and uh, it was selected for, to be one of the PAX 10, which is, uh, PAX is, a, is the Penny Arcade Expo, it's a sort of, it's a video game expo held in Seattle. It had uh, over 50,000 people this year, and they selected uh, 10 independently created games to showcase there, along with all of the big game companies. So uh, um, I was there, and it was, it was an amazing experience. It wasn't like one of the independent games competitions, as much as I've heard. They're kind of, kind of cutthroat, like IGF's kind of cutthroat. This was just uh, 10 developers getting together, getting to show off their games, and uh, we actually all got to be pretty good friends. We're trying to keep in touch now. Was it through a popular vote? No, it was a. Uh, there were 50 game industry experts, including Gabe and Tycho of Penny Arcade and various game industry experts. I don't know who the panel was specifically. And they were told to select 10 games 
based on gameplay and fun factor. So some of the, the games weren't necessarily all that polished art-wise, like mine was a, you know, a Flash game. They were told just to judge on gameplay and fun factor. So in terms of the numbers, I posted your photos onto the Biotic Conversations mailing list. For people who didn't see the Flickr photos, there were hardcore gamers, there were cosplay folk. Can you, can you give some description to the kind of people that were there? This was... Uh, Really, at almost all ages, everyone who plays games, casual and, and hardcore gamers, were there. A lot of the, the game media was there, too. But it was a, it's a very different mix. I've been to you know conventions like Gen Con before, where it's mostly men, mostly age 18 to 30. This was There were families here. There, were, there was a pretty good balance of men and women. A few cosplayers, but you know just for, just for fun, and it wasn't, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> It's hard to describe, but the, the vibe there is very positive for the most. I mean, I guess it's been more positive in the past from what I've heard. This was sort of people getting a little crowded. There are a lot more people than were expected again this year. But everyone's usually very nice, very willing to help out people. I had both my, my Game Boy or my Nintendo DS and my uh, cell phone slipped out of my pocket, and they were both returned by way, which isn't right. necessarily you'd expect. The outline that you gave through the conversations mailing list was at the end you'd been handing out stickers and you were horse basically talking to all the people yeah. that were coming up to you. We talked previously in a, in a biota chat with regards to the Flash game, you know, the, the people that play these games, the people that develop these games. Was it different to actually meet these people in person? Did you get a sense of a demographic that you hadn't quite tracked? Definitely. Like all I know online is how many people have played the game. So I have a, a little tracker code in there that, that updates a website. Incidentally, it's about almost 7 million right now. But yeah, it, you got to watch, or I got to watch families come up and play where, you know, the, the middle kid would show his little brother and his dad how to play the game. You got to see people kind of trying out the game, being told what to do, and watch them go from confused to the exact moment they really get the time travel mechanic and their face kind of kind of lights up a little bit. That's very gratifying to see someone, you know, just, just enjoying something you've created. It, yeah, it was definitely, I was definitely hoarse after explaining the game mechanics hundreds of times. So what's the, what's the takeaway for artificial life developers? Should they attend PAX and display their wares? Could they attend PAX and display their wares? I don't know how much it costs to have a booth at PAX because you're, you're there competing with the big companies. We were smack dab between Sony and Blizzard, so I don't know if they're, I mean, maybe they'll think about having uh, an indie hall in the future if it sort of takes off how, because they, they definitely seem to be willing to support the, the indie game development, but it depends on what kind of financials they have. I mean, if you work in a larger company and you have an A-Life game, I, I certainly don't see any reason why, you know, if you work in the video game industry and you can afford a booth, I definitely recommend trying to go to PAX. If you just like video games, go to PAX and attend because it's amazing. And in terms of corporate interest, I, I know you left with an Xbox 360, but do you get a yeah. sense of what the corporate interest was? Uh, pretty high. I had I have a stack of business cards from Nintendo and Microsoft and other people a lot of games journalists, they definitely want to at least make contact. And a lot of these indie indie developers were they have their games on Xbox or two of them at least have their games on Xbox Live Arcade. One of them actually, Stranger Factors Two is actually being released by uh, Greenhouse. Stranger Factors Two is being released through Greenhouse. So that's a connection for them right there. Two of the games were uh, student teams and I think those student teams have already been snapped up by various game companies before the conference. But you haven't quit your day job yet. No I haven't. I'm loyal. <laughs> To my, to my educational uh, programming right now. I have a lot of control of my job, and I'm, I'm trying to promote this idea of educational gaming where 
the learning comes out of the gameplay and isn't sort of just tacked on where the game is. That, you know, it's sort of traditional to have the game as sort of the spoonful of sugar that you take with your learning. And I'm really trying to push for trying and doing things and failing. That's how you learn. That's the best way to learn. I'm sticking to it for now. There's also been some correspondence recently, and I also remember correspondence with regards to flow specifically about what constitutes an artificial life game. This probably comes into the next topic as well, but I was just wondering if your if your view over the past 18 months has changed about what constitutes an artificial life game. I certainly thought about it a little bit more. I was trying to prototype a sort of artificial life RTS that I'm kind of hung up for now. I'll maybe get back to it, but it's not going to be in the same platform I was thinking. But it doesn't. I don't think that artificial life has to mean genetic algorithms. I think that even just a, you know, it's a simulation, so how much are you simulating? How much of life are you simulating? You obviously can't simulate all of life. Does it really matter if you simulate a little bit and call that artificial life? I don't, I don't really think so. So even a game where you're just gardening, to some extent, if you, if you can garden and grow tomatoes and then harvest seeds from those tomatoes and then grow more tomatoes, that's sort of artificial life, I think. And that kind of game is, you know, amazingly enough, kind of popular right now in some circles. The topic for this evening was coming out with the title of Spore Till You Snore. I have been consuming so much spore-related stuff over the past five or six days. I think I'll probably let Travis open with regards to his impressions of the, the, the coverage of spore and what he thinks it means to artificial life. My experience with Spore started back in 2005 when I saw Little Wright talk about it and give the hour-long talk where he uh, described all the things that he wanted to do with procedural programming and demonstrated kind of the basis for it. It certainly has gotten a, a lot of attention with the release uh, pending, and I understand it's out in a couple of countries now. And I think we're about a day and a half away from the U.S. release here. So far, the coverage has been interesting. First of all, it's definitely very much as uh, as described and as promised in that it portrays this adventure of a, uh, starting from a, a cell at the kind of microcellular level, growing and getting bigger all the way through this uh, galactic conquer game kind of RTS style. And all the reviews so far have converged on the same thing, which is that it's a really, really fascinating toy, but it's not terribly deep as a game. And that's okay with me. As far as I'm concerned, that can be even better because for a lot of people, this is definitely going to be an introduction to gaming. This is going to be something that a lot of kids are playing in schools. This is going to be something that needs to really, in order to be effective, in order to reach the largest audience, you know, needs to have the kind of that simplistic ability to it where you can kind of pick it up and play it casually and it doesn't require a lot of complex interaction to deal with it. Aside from typing in the name of the creatures that you make, I understand you can play the game almost entirely with the mouse. And so that's definitely got some some pluses on, on its side as far as I'm concerned. It seems to me that this is a, a terribly, terribly exciting game as for artificial life because it really does explore all of the topics related to artificial life in this very fun and intuitive way. You can actually see natural selection take place as you create creatures on your own and find things that work and things that don't and see how you end up not reusing the things that aren't working for your creatures and the things that are working for your creatures allow them to survive a little bit longer and grow into other creatures and how that evolution happens and how that growth occurs through this cycle of life and cycle of death and the opportunities here and all the themes that are being explored are just so neat i mean that and you know i've played a ton with the creature creator it's just a ton and a half of fun the kind of the ability to uh, just kind of slap a bunch of body parts together 
and watch it animate itself in this incredibly realistic and lifelike way and then even apply these skeletal animations to this otherwise, you know, completely un ununiform skeleton and watch this this creature that, you know, is, is lopsided and has six arms and three legs dance and do backflips and punch and do all these fun things. It's incredible. It's absolutely just this this wonderful mix of graphical humor and um, artificial life themes combined into this really fun toy. And Joe, what's your thinking with regards to Spore in terms of both how it's been received by the press and also what it means to artificial life? Well, I mean, I would say that, that getting to design my own animal is kind of why I started getting into artificial life in the first place. It's definitely, I think, an exciting tool. And I think if it's just a toy, you get to play with it a little bit. And someone, a young, a young kid playing this game and then running up to a place where they can't, they don't have the control, maybe they'd really want to. They'd want to, they're like, oh, I wish I could do this. I wish I could create all these other things. Maybe then they'll get into doing it themselves in, into artificial life. I, mean, I found personally that as soon as you hit a barrier in a program, that's when you want to start making your own programs. I see my wife's actually downloading the Spore demo right now to her DS, the Spore Creatures demo. So I, I mean, I haven't got a chance to actually play it hands-on, but I, I got to see the uh, presentation at PAX. And you can definitely see the flow influence now in the in the first game. I, I agree. I think it's it's very exciting. It's it's a little it's a little flavor of artificial life, and maybe it will get more people interested in doing it themselves. Will Wright is talking to the choir with regards to the folks on the call this evening. It's interesting this idea of obsessive dissecting, wanting to explore, wanting to beat or challenge the program, because this ultimately is the mentality of of artificial life developers fundamentally and I think possibly the people who will get the most from Spore and traditionally the people who have gotten the most from uh, Will Wright's games previously. But what interested me in reading the journalists' analysis, particularly the fast players through, I think the fastest review that I've seen has taken about five or seven hours to play the game through end to end is these folk who are initially communicating the stuff with regards to Spore in terms of review copies are probably in some regard the antithesis of the kind of obsessive artificial life developer and probably ideal Spore user. Joe, you've had, you've had contact with gaming journalists recently. Do you think they're all across the board or do you think they're fundamentally uh, pragmatic with regards to their jobs? I definitely think they're across the board. I mean, first of all, a lot of game journalists are... Gaming journalism as a as a thing, as a as an industry, is just starting up. Not all of them take it seriously. Not all. A lot of them are just doing it as a hobby. They'll just like, oh, I can start my own website. And so, I mean, some of those people are actually the most professional because they they want their website to succeed. But yeah, game journalists are all across the board, and you definitely see that some some people are really out there to have their snarky opinions heard and get to say you know clever things about how this doesn't work or clever things about how great this is and others are really more interested in the games. Across the board is the answer. People play games for different reasons, and if you want a game, you want a, a storyline, maybe then Spore in for you. If you want to play with a, a big, crazy world with all the stuff going on, and, and it's a just a nice big toy, then maybe it's more for you. But I have heard that you kind of get railroaded a little bit into the into the next stage. I kind of feel like once I got to the creature stage, I'd want to stay there for as long as I felt you know, I really wanted to before moving on. So I'm a little disappointed hearing that, but... Maybe I'll get to go back after I beat it. I don't know. 
Certainly. I mean, this is what I'm seeing in the reviews, and this could be something where the reviewers just aren't receptive to the the difficulty in terms of interlinking. I was reflecting on owning pets recently with regards to these transition of sizes. We have turtles now, and they grow from very small creatures into actually quite large creatures. In terms of your designing games, Travis, have you encountered this idea of kind of size transitioning and if you were Will Wright or if you were on the sport team, how would you do the, the transitions between the, the various scales associated with sport? It was actually in 2005 that Marcus and Sean and I came up with an idea for a game that had these themes in it. Uh, we actually encountered uh, several people who were working on a similar theme, which is the idea of being able to zoom from the microscopic layer all the way out to the galactic and beyond layer and doing it in this very transitionless way. I think that the the way that Will Wright approached it, um, and he kind of even demoed this in his 2005 thing, which actually came as a bit of a surprise to us when we saw it kind of later in the year, because we thought that this had been sort of like, you know, one of the things that we were working on in secret, and here's somebody else who's already, is already doing it in a big game. One of the things that, you know, that immediately kind of occurred to us is just I- iconifying the things as they get smaller and smaller. So as you move further away from a city, the city fails to become the detail of the city itself and becomes just the static icon of it to represent its location on the map, but not necessarily its actual detail of it. Uh, this, is a, this is a process that's very similar to something called MIP mapping, which is where you keep several different resolutions of the texture in memory at, at a given time and then display the appropriately sized resolution one for uh, how far or how close away you are. So you can apply this at a, a not just a, a texture level, but also kind of a scale level, where you keep multiple models of the same object in memory uh, of different resolution and just display the appropriate one. So when you get out to, this, to the point where you have to show 50 or 60 cities at the same time, you're no longer showing these big complex models of the cities with all these interactions happening within them, even though you may be internally still tracking those representations. The other thing is, is very simply anticipating when you're going to need that data, when you're when knowing ahead of time that the ship is, is moving in through the atmosphere, so it's time to better start loading those models into memory and getting that data into memory. And so having kind of a preemptive sense about what the player is going to do next and throwing up a little bit of veneer and, and the imagery in order to keep them satisfied while we kind of move through the clouds of the atmosphere or whatever, while we load the data as we come down into the city or vice versa, right, have some uh, effect or something can, to kind of, you know, throw in front of the user for a minute while we say, well, you know, while we don't say loading is, is the idea, right? You sort of see uh, that to a small extent in, in a game like uh, Katamari Damacy where you serve the, same, the size of a a thumbtack and you get to be about as big as a, a continent. But they handle it in a yeah, sort of similar way. They handle it, there's a transition where you sort of feel yourself growing and you can tell that they've unloaded some of the smaller objects and, and simplified a lot of the medium-sized objects for you. But, I mean, in terms of procedural programming, this is where Will Wright could have really shone in his choices of, of procedural algorithms in terms of what you're you're talking about with regards to the the depth of view. I mean, I think this is something that as someone who's played for quite a, a number of years with procedural algorithms on landscapes, they are very beautiful. And here, I'm not even talking about fractals. I'm talking about a wide variety of, of algorithmic methods 
they're very beautiful at, at doing particularly coastline zooms uh, down to grains of sand and kind of subgrains of sand in some regard. So, I mean, I, that was one of the things that I thought would have been really interesting if Will had uh, taken the, the kind of procedural uh, Bible to the kind of nth level and had a, a game without transitions that purely used optimized procedural algorithms in order to do all the uh, depth of field. Now, as Travis has noted, there is some additional issues with regards to obviously large-scale processing, but I think there was a certain discussion of SETI at home in the initial phases of development. And again, when I first heard about it and hearing about the SETI at home development being the inspiration, my thought was that Will Wright would utilize a similar kind of technology, particularly with the rise of uh, network games in order to utilize this. I mean, what I'm getting to here really is the idea that if Spore defines a genre, the artificial life development community is perfectly placed for all the Spore clones that could come out in the foreseeable future. Joe, I mean, you've, you've just come from the, the PAX conference. Do you get the sense that the contemporary gaming community in terms of the development community could produce Spore clones currently? Yeah, no. I mean, a lot of that, that technology for procedural movement has sort of been used, but I, I get the feeling that they have a lot of, of research in there. I mean, I guess you could make a Spore-like game without having to do everything that they do, without having to, to do all the, the creature creator with all the procedural stuff. You could just sort of throw together lots of different ability, you know, body parts that kind of fit together in a way that's predetermined instead of procedural. But it's hard to say spore clone because it's really its own thing right now. But there's definitely lots of things in spore that I think you could take and make into a different game. I mean, obviously, a lot of things in spore were taken from other games and put into into spore. Like, for instance, the cell, the cell level, I mean, that's very flow-like and the flow was never really even a game. But you could definitely make that into series of games, I think. It's hard to say. I think that there's that there's room for artificial life games. Uh, there's lots of different things you can do with artificial life to make a game. I was just playing Viva Pinata, which is essentially a gardening game, but you're you're growing plants and attracting animals and breeding animals to try and improve your garden, and that's that's definitely an artificial life game, I'd say. And Travis, I guess I want to phrase the same question to you, but with the view that you've, I don't know your exact number of years, but certainly a number of years you've worked with independent game studios and and develop games through these avenues. Do you see Spore as forming a, a genre and there being a s series of Spore clones coming in the foreseeable future? I think that there's already a, a good enough of a following that they, that Spore has been built on. Spore's really been following the traditions of a lot of prior Maxis games, Populous and SimCity, and it borrows a lot of aspects from that. So. I, I, and and the RTSs, uh, starting with Dune 2 and World and Warcraft and Starcraft and all of those, and so it, it very much kind of borrows and, and bringing in flow for the for the initial part of the game and and even the old time Defender for kind of the end the end aspect where you're just flying around in spaceships and blowing stuff up. So I, I certainly do see more of a borrowing in it than I do uh, from it right now. But I certainly think that that is bound to change. I think that there's going to be not just more of these mashup types of games, which kind of borrows all of the best things of all of the existing games, but also more of a trend of this following the procedural approach, using procedural approaches more in order to do more with less and in order to pull off things that you otherwise couldn't pull off. And good examples of this are like the natural motion work that's coming out that provides you know these seamless tweening of, of very realistic character motions. 
fantastic stuff. They're using it in the in the new Star Wars uh, stuff that's gonna, that LucasArts is working on. Again, this team repeating in the evolution of uh, taking a flow, a character flow, that goes from the very small all the way out to this much larger concept. And I think that we're, we're most comfortable with doing this in plots, where you have a character who is initially destitute and becomes a statesman of some sort. But I think that this theme is, is going to be explored more in the types of things that we see, like characters themselves, where the characters are growing and the characters are changing over time because we're just really getting to the point of the technology where the technology can support those things. We saw in 2005 and 2006, time and space start to bend a little bit. We're seeing a lot of that more in major props to Chronotron. Just as an aside, I'm actually familiar with the game because I read a, re- a review about it. Apparently, it's got incredible reception amongst all of my friends who did attend PAX. Those types of things, you know, harnessing nature's forces. It was compared most often to Cursor Times 10. I don't know if you if you got yeah. your inspiration. No, I, I played it uh, during development. A lot of similar games I noticed while I was still in the middle of development and some TV Winterbottom I found out about the day I, I released. Actually, probably the most similar because it's also a 2D side-scrolling thing where you create time clones. Yeah, I actually um, saw something at the, at the 2006. There was, a, there was a guy demonstrating something similar as well. 2006 GDC. Somebody did, demonstrating something as well. Anyway, it's these, these themes are definitely going to get repeated over and over again. The theme of time changing in within the game, the theme of harnessing the forces of nature within the game, the theme of characters growing and evolving over time. Finally, I just want to mention that it's interesting that you brought up fractals, Tom, because the nature of the game is, is fractal in nature. Both in, in, in the idea that in, in a fractal you have an increasing amount of information in a decreasing amount of space, you know, infinitely more information with infinitely less space. And so you can kind of take that and reverse it and kind of grow up out of that fractal where you start off in the cellular level and grow up through the, the fractal out into this larger view of things. And I think those types of those types of themes and those types of gameplay plots are going to be repeated a lot. And you're going to see a lot of those types of clones. Another of the things that Spore is, is sort of introducing or, or championing is the idea of user-created content where you're not playing multiplayer, but your, your content is uploaded to a server and then dispersed among other people. And that's definitely something that a whole lot of games could benefit from, and, and even maybe even some other applications that aren't games, harnessing the world's creativity and then uploading it and sporing it out to everybody else. That in and of itself probably provides the greatest challenge we have as game developers because harnessing that ability really requires you to think about how you're designing your game in a very different way. It's no longer the case that you can design it one way and have it be that way for the rest of your life, which is traditionally how games have always been. You, You release the game, and the game doesn't change over time, right? You play through it, and there's a start and a middle and an end, Hopefully, or maybe it's you know maybe it's Pac-Man and it goes on forever and ever and just keeps getting faster or whatever. But the the mazes don't necessarily change over time and it doesn't become an entirely different game over time. But in the future, that's going to be something that we absolutely have to embrace as game developers because it's something that adds just an infinite. There's really no way to measure the amount of value that it adds to the to the user and so the, the, the game value. To some extent, being an artificial life developer might prepare you for that a little bit because part of the idea there is you want to be surprised by the program. And it's different if you're, if you're expecting to be surprised by users creating things. So like one example of it, the, the Miis in, for the Nintendo Wii, there's only a few like eyes and ears and things you can build that's actually not too infinite, but people have found ways to 
move and, and rearrange features to make them look like different things. Like they'll draw pictures, like little icons, and just have them on the center of someone's face. Or they'll they'll use one body part to represent some others and things that, that obviously are, were, are using that engine in a way that wasn't intended. So that's something you have to think about when you create anything that allows user-generated content. And certainly, historically, I mean, you've had things like the, the mods community, but also I'm thinking about early RTS games and even more contemporary RTS games that have had, as Travis mentioned, kind of fractal-like components in terms of the generation of landscape, and this certainly comes through a lot of contemporary artificial life development as well. In terms of evolving procedural movement, and this is why I'm trying to push Jeffrey Ventrella into releasing his stuff open source, I think there's a lot of learning there. I certainly read Jeffrey's papers, and also, obviously, Maciej Komenczynski with Framsticks. Ironically, this idea of user-uploaded content was Gerald de Jung's original idea with regards to Darwin at Home that folks would actually come and create their own Darwin at Home creatures through his site and then there would be some possibly downloadable or interactive component. I'm not sure if either of you heard when Gerald was talking about the introduction of chat and these kind of things into the original Darwin at Home, but that was certainly his original dream. I think artificial life developers are ideally placed in terms of dealing with perhaps what traditional game developers would view as chaos in terms of such a wide variety of of user-generated content. But I think that's also interesting with regards to the information that we've seen so far about Spore is the, the elements of control in certain places. As an artificial life developer and a game developer, really I could ask this question to either of you, so I might start with Joe. How do you resolve the two competing ideas in terms of playability but also beautiful evolving chaos in some regard? Well, I'm still learning. I, I, mean, I, I have a couple prototypes of different games that use various levels of artificial life and gameplay. And I found that my instinct is to put in too much artificial life. And I'm trying to figure out the balance, what to scale back, especially because I'm, I'm running for Flash and then speed is such an issue. And maybe if I start writing for XNA or something, it'll be slightly less of an issue. But the Trilobots engine I was at, they, they have you know almost Turing complete program, metaprogramming language. It's all based on this binary tree that breaks apart and recombines and can represent just about any kind of program, but it, it's too slow. And I, what I need to do is, is go back and, and give them real dumb, simple strategies that they can pick from a few of them. And it, it seems better for the player because they don't want to play 30 levels before the enemies start to get kind of smart. It, it, it's not appealing. At least for the way I've set it up, you, have, you kind of have to sacrifice a little bit of artificial life to make gameplay. My background with regards to working in startups in the Bay Area had some connection with game development and also handheld electronic toys. And the thing that I brought from you know, developing in a shed in Australia with XT machines was the ability to run long-term and large-scale command line simulations. So taking the artificial life component of the game or the toy or whatever I was playing with and writing it into a command line executable simulation that could run for hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of, of simulation cycles in order just to tune the algorithms before I put them out in a small Z80 controlled handheld toy or these kind of things. And certainly this is the feedback I would give to people who are interested in developing artificial life games is don't forget, irrespective of what it ends up on, 
the immense amount of computing power that you can utilize without any graphics in terms of writing long-term and multi-agent command line simulations before you release it out on the game playing public. Travis, what is your view with regards to the combination of artificial life and traditional game development and how do you balance these two things? Well, for me, the, the answer lies in an, in an art form that you almost can't teach, and you can, I can only describe it as elegance. You know, our algorithms work elegantly because they're simple and beautiful, and they don't require complexity. Life is the same way. It works because of a very simple set of rules that can be, you know, broken down into these kind of elegant interactions, which give rise to this incredible complexity. When you have a system that is elegant, it's easy to understand and it's easy to make work. Uh, and it's elegant because it's of its simplicity and the way in which it folds in on itself and enables itself and enables the things that it's supposed to enable. So learning that simplicity and learning that elegance of just being able to produce these you know, incredible feats out of these very simple set of rules, and fractals being the classic example, right? From the, the, the classic uh, set of nine for every... Uh, take a line with a hook. For every surface on your line with a hook, add nine more lines with hooks. And this is the, the classic Mandelbrot fractal. And you just keep on doing this and doing this and doing this over and over again, this very simple repetition of nine, and it, it gives rise to this incredibly beautiful kind of bug-like pattern that uh, can be recursed infinitely deep into. And so that that concept right there, that elegance of, oh, it's just nine repeated over and over again, that's how you harness these these concepts and really build them into the thinking of what it is you're doing, right? And to turn the topic on its head a little bit, I mean, one of the things that I've watched in Wonder and certainly talked about, I think possibly with Joe, but certainly with Brian of Graysum, is the idea that the artificial life community can utilize things like Spore in terms of ways of communicating abstract ideas that exist in the artificial life community and also introducing what we do in the artificial life community to a far broader audience. Certainly reading the Spore reviews, the discussions, the press releases, these kind of things, a number of the topics that we've already discussed on BioToLive were introduced as topics to be thought about in connection with Spore. Joe, what's your thinking with regards to utilizing Spore as a means of explaining artificial life to a broader community? Well, it's definitely, if you have a cultural touchstone, I think you should use it. I, I think we have yet to see how big Spore will actually be, and it might end up being like black and white with this huge build-up, and then everyone's kind of let down when it's not a game that actually lets you be God or something like that. Although I actually really enjoyed black and white when I could still run it. But yeah, having a cultural touchstone is important, and that's one of the things I realized at, at PAX was how many, much more of a cultural touchstone I had with the people there. I mean, I, I wore a shirt with a scene from the old, you know, sort of Unix game Rogue. I don't know if you're familiar. The, the sort of roguelike internet hack. And no one understands that shirt when I wear it in public, but but here, but at PAX, everyone was complimenting me on it. It was a completely different cultural touchstone. I had a 30-minute conversation with a couple of kids about about roguelikes. Yeah, I mean, if it if it turns out to be a positive thing, and it's definitely something we can say, yeah, it's like it's like spore. And then maybe leave it at that if they don't really seem receptive enough to to have you explain like, well, yeah, but we're actually simulating natural selection here on a on a large scale or, or on a small scale, and, and it blows up into a large scale and I'm still not sure how much natural selection is simulated in Spore itself and during the creature phase besides what you're doing you know sort of your selection yeah it's something it's, it's a touchstone so Travis I want to take this question a little bit darker with regards to 
your insight in this. Certainly I found reading the spore-related press releases, and in particular Will Wright's own speaking, he was heckled by two of the greatest hecklers of our community, Rudy Rucker and Bruce Damer, when he spoke at NASA with regards to his use of artificial life in Spore and whether he thought of it as an artificial life game. But certainly reading the press, it takes a particular third-party observer to actually link the term artificial life with Spore and reading through the names that he has associated that he's quoting, Dawkins and Kaufman in particular, who I'm sure were heavily vetted before their names were used in reference with regards to Spore literature. How do you see the artificial life community almost, I don't know whether we're hijacking or whether we're getting involved in that regard, but when there seems to be an apparent division between what uh, EA Maxis wants to publicize about Spore? First of all, there's the opportunity here, which is to recognize it for what it is, and, this, and that's the, this wonderful learning toy. And EA Maxis wants to, wants to publicize it as a, as a game, and I don't think that people are going to necessarily buy that. They know what a game looks like, and they know the difference between you know, something that you play, you play for hours and hours and days and days and weeks and months and years, and that's World of Warcraft, and that's not what this is. And people know the difference between it. However, the opportunities here are, I think, laid out before us as far as I'm concerned with uh, the design. You've got the design. You, you see it all around you. You take things like World of Warcraft, or even better example is Eve, where you have this universe of kind of persistent areas that, that people can live and exist and, and work and play in, and you allow for the changing of it over time, and you allow for players to come in and do the things that they want to do and change the environment in the ways that they want to change and grow it and, and add to it in the ways that they that they say they see fit. And this is this is the, the, the theme that is is just kind of being overlooked a little bit, I think, as far as like some of the releases of these of things like, you know, Warhammer and all of that stuff is if they got the realm to realm and they've got the different players, you know, playing against each other, but they really don't have this idea of growing things and, and changing the world. And so the opportunity here is to kind of hijack that as a as an example of where they got it right of where gaming as an, as an industry really should be taking its examples from. This is a game that figured out how to not keep the, the environment static and how to change the environment over time and keep people coming back to, or keep people playing it and, and contributing you know, uh, content to it. And I think that as a community, we really embrace those concepts of you know, the world doesn't have to be static. The world can be dynamic. The world can come alive. The world can grow and change. And Spore is a classic example of where this works out. I think it'll be a real win for the community just as a product. I was going to actually say that too at some, at some point, that these, these virtual world games really need to be less static. I think a lot of the players feel that way too. A friend of mine is, is a games journalist who, who almost completely focuses on, on massively multiplayer games. And that's one of the things that he's been trying to push for too, or at least get people to talk about is uh, you know they want to they want to change the culture of a, of a society. You're playing this sort of huge social experiment, but there's nothing really changing besides what the writers decide changes. It's it's uh, maybe a little frustrating to you feel a little impotent maybe. But I will say that one of the challenges for for artificial life, if you're if you're simulating an ecosystem, one of the important things is you know the rule that you don't get more out of it than the energy you put into it. So you know how much sunlight's going into your world. So you can kind of say, well, this much energy is being lost to friction or heat, and this much energy can be used to create these kinds of foods. The problem with these virtual worlds is that you've got these people popping in and out 
and so you don't know how much I don't know, I want to say energy or, or matter, you don't know how much you have in the world. And so you can have a lot of people log in and really change the landscape without the kind of balance that you have in the real world or in a virtual world where you controlled how many entities were always in there at the same time. So I think that's one of the things that people have found is, is a difficulty. I don't know if, ever, if any of you were aware of uh, Technosphere, which was a sort of uh, artificial life experiment. There was a website called technosphere.co.uk. I think it was associated with a museum somewhere in the UK. But it allowed you to kind of build an animal out of a few parts. You got to you know, choose some some mouth parts and some leg parts and it would create some stats for the animal and you'd name it and it would send you email updates on how the animal was doing in this big virtual world that you got to kind of see some photos of. But there was no cap on how many people could build predators. And so more people built predators than herbivores because the herbivores were all killed right away. Uh, the predators would all starve to death right away because they'd completely obliterated the herbivore population. It just it didn't become a balanced population because anyone could create an entity in that world at any time. Another curious point was that uh, Spore shares a Wikipedia page with no belief as a god game. And I think it's interesting, looking at the publicity associated with Spore, how Will Wright has been able to try and avoid offending what would appear to be a relatively large demographic in the U.S. with regards to... Uh, putting both evolution and seven days of creation together in various press releases. Travis, what do you think with regards to how to sell these kind of games? Tell them the, tell them the truth, which is that things that change and surprise you are really fun. It's really a challenge to, you know, like Joe was talking about, really a challenge to kind of find that, that balance and that dynamic. And learning about these things is actually incredibly enlightening. And being enlightened is always a ton of fun. Joe, is there anything exciting and new that you're working on currently that we should talk to you about in, in a few months' time? Maybe. There's a stuff up in the air, so... I'll get back to you on that. I, I do get a lot of interlinking correspondence sometimes occasionally from Travis but from other members of the community with regards to little game-related projects they're working on. And as a personal note, I'd always like to share this intellectual property as a community. So if, if there are small clones that are coming out, at least they're uh, based on, a, on the, the vast amount of community knowledge. I'm not sure. I think I've passed a couple on to Travis in the past, but certainly if you are looking for people that have particular skill sets or particular knowledge areas, I do get a lot of correspondence correspondence in that regard and really this goes out to anyone listening to Biota Live as well if you have various components I know iPhone related programming is something that John Klein currently owns in the community and I'm moving very slowly in that direction but have you thought about mobile games at all Joe? I have I keep getting pushed in that direction by various people I, I think computing is going to move mobile pretty soon anyway so yeah it's something, it's something to look into there are a lot of cool little particle toys to play with on the iPhone I've noticed it lends itself perfectly the interface for a number of artificial life related games. So Travis, are you going to be on the call next week with Larry Yeager? Yes, I plan on it. Yeah, he's a wonderful fella. I mean, in terms of all the aspects of artificial life, both historical and also novel insights. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Larry next week. I know Ed said that he would be calling in as well because obviously Grace um, Indiana is going to be set up in the, the very near future and Larry has a number of students obviously in the Indiana area. So I'd like to thank you both very much for, for chatting on or for the necessary length of time. It's been wonderful. If folks want to correspond, tom at noble8.com. I'll get you in contact with both Joe and Travis. If you're interested in the Biota Conversations mailing list, that's also a really easy way to contact them both. Look forward to talking soon. Great, thanks. Thank you.